The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's first book. It has some of the most wonderful truths in it for us as believers. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, you have a section in which the Apostle Paul is explaining to them something very important. He has spent the first three chapters, remember, as we looked at them, assuring these young believers that he was sent from God to bring the gospel to them in the power of the Spirit. He didn't, it didn't come in letter only, in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with much full conviction. Just as you know, he says, what kind of men we were made to be for your sake. In other words, you saw how Jesus worked in our lives so that we could be those who delivered the message to you that you needed to hear. And now he begins to to apply this gospel to specific real-life situations that they face, issues, the kind of stuff that they're facing as young believers. This is based upon the, the report of Timothy. Remember, Timothy came back, found out how they were doing, and he went all the way back down to Athens to tell Paul because Paul was so concerned about them. He was concerned because... They knew he was in trouble. They had driven him out of town, and he ended up going all the way down into Athens. And so he didn't know what was going on in their hearts and minds. He was afraid that they would be shaken in their faith and their confidence. And so he sends Timothy back to him to get a report of how they're doing. And the report is wonderful because it turns out that they really did experience the new birth. You know, it's, it's something when you share the gospel with somebody... There's been th- several things developed over the years trying to have some kind of tool where you could say, I know for sure this person has come to faith in Christ because things like they said the sinner's prayer. Let me tell you, you don't know. You don't know until you see the life of Jesus Christ being manifested in their life. Sometimes it happens instantaneously and you begin to see the effects of it and just the way they live. Other times... You don't see them for a while. And so Paul, he understood this, but he saw, when he got this report back from Timothy, he saw effects in the lives of these believers at Thessalonica that convinced him that they truly knew the Lord Jesus Christ and their lives were being changed. There's there's two big words in the New Testament about salvation. One of them is is justification. We are justified by faith. But justification doesn't mean I'm making excuses for the way I am. Justification means that God, the the one lawgiver and judge, declares that you are absolutely righteous in his eyes. How in the world can he do that? He does it, according to Romans chapter 6, based upon what Christ has done in their place. And so because Christ stood in your place and fulfilled all righteousness... And that righteousness was imputed to you, was given to your account, so that you stand righteous before God simply because you have rested your faith in Jesus Christ. You have put your trust in him as the only Savior. And now he counts you to be absolutely righteous in his eyes, acceptable to him. Now, he is aware of all the stuff that's going on in your life. In the the book of uh, Romans chapter 7, you're, you're all pretty familiar with what Paul laments about what was going on in his life, that he had been a Christian for some time, and yet he found that he still desired to sin. He still was tempted to sin and to be disobedient to God. And he actually cries out. Remember, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death or the body of this death? In other words, who's going to set me free so that I can now do what I really want to do, which is to obey God and be faithful to him. Why do I keep giving in to these temptations to do what I don't want to do? And that's exactly how he put it. The very things I hate, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do them. I'm not faithful in them. And so he cries out, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? What's his answer? His answer, get this, I want you all to understand this. His answer is, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the answer to that dilemma. We have been made right with God because of our connection with Jesus Christ. Now, there's another big word. It's called sanctification. Justification means you've been declared to be right, and God treats you as being perfectly right with him. 
And he also began to sanctify you. And the word sanctification means to make holy. And the word holy and sanctification or sanctify are the same word. Hagias. It means to be set apart. To be set apart from everything that's defiling to God. And to be placed into the very closeness, very closeness with the living God. And this sanctification happens over a three-step process. We were sanctified when we first believed. That is, we were set apart to the gospel and we believe the truth about who Jesus Christ is. That was number one. Number two is a a progression, a process that takes place. We begin to experience ongoing, day-by-day sanctification. We are being set apart to Christ. We become more and more like Jesus Christ as we live for him. Now, it isn't something that always happens perfectly because sometimes we resist we're going to find out in the text today that you have to actually cooperate with God as he sanctifies you. You have to actually in, in, intend to do exactly what he's commanded you to do in growing so that you become more and more set apart to God. And then finally, the last step in this process of sanctification is when you enter into the presence of Christ. And when you enter into the presence of Christ, you're going to be transformed into his very likeness. Well, today, what this passage is about is about this whole matter of sanctification. And I want you to listen to these first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually are doing, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Get this. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you be set apart to the living God. You know how it was when you first got married? Remember that? I remember so vividly when we first got married. Well, we only got married once. But that time we got married, all of a sudden... I began to, to know this person like I had never known her before. I knew, had known her quite a while, but we became the closest of companions. I became set apart to her, and she became set apart to me. And he says this is what he wants to see in our lives, as we become set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes the closest person in our relationship. So this is, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let me just mention one thing. The word will here... Has the, it, is, it, is, it is not a decision. It's, it's better than that. It is his desire. For this is the desire of God. A desire reveals your nature. What do you desire? You know, when you start thinking, you start thinking about what kind of things do I desire? How do I live my life? And how am I drawn this way and that way? And he says the desire of God, which reveals God's character and his nature is that we be set apart, that we be sanctified, our sanctification. Isn't that something that God wants you to be sanctified? He wants you to be like his son. He wants you to have the character of his son to bear the fruit of the spirit, which is a picture of sanctification. And he says, that's the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, in sanctification and honor. Possessing your own vessel is referring to the way that you treat your body as a believer. I used to think he was talking about, because this word possess can mean acquire. I thought he was talking about, for the longest time, I thought he was talking about how do you, how do you get a wife? <laughs> I did. I thought that's what he was talking about, that each of you know how to acquire his own vessel, his own wife, in sanctification and honor. Now, if you remember over in in First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, it's a good thing if a man does not touch a woman, but, and he goes on to say, God wants you to marry because of the present distress. He wants you to marry because God created the woman to play a role in your life, and you ladies, he gave you a man to play a role in your life that is truly significant. The man is a picture of Jesus Christ, and the woman is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. That she respects him in such a, to such a degree that she actually wants him to be the spiritual leader in their home. She actually wants him 
to walk like Christ and to lead his family the way Christ would lead his family. And so he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. I think it's really important how you get your wife, but I think in this context he's talking about how you possess your physical body, that you don't use it for immorality. There's all kinds of people living as though God has no opinion about the way we handle our body. And the fact is, he does care. And he, so Paul says to them I, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That God gave you a body for a purpose, that is to glorify him. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in, in this matter, because the Lord is the, is the avenger in all these things, just as we are also told, you, we told you before and solemnly warned you. God takes this seriously. Somebody was asking me this morning about the, the expression in 1 John about sinning unto death. He says, if you see a brother sin, you pray for him. But I'm not telling you to pray for him if, he's, if he has sinned to sin unto death. And that's puzzling to us. But he's talking about the fact that there are certain kinds of sinning that will lead to physical death for the believer. That's what he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If people play fast and loose with the, the Lord's Supper and they don't take it seriously as they were doing it at Corinth, it could end up in their sickness or their physical death. And he says, if you see a believer sinning in that manner, I'm not even telling you to pray for them. I will deal with it. So God takes it seriously if we obey him. He's a God of grace. One of the most amazing things that God actually delights in you. Even when you, there are people in your life that don't delight in you. You know how that is? Most of us have had that experience where we have somebody in our life and they do not delight in us. They are irritated with us. You know, life would be a lot better if I didn't have to deal with you. That's how we sometimes think about people. But he says that God delights in you And he wants you to delight in people. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, what's the greatest commandment in all of the law? What was his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. God wants you to love him above all things because he loves you. He's the true God who set his love upon you and called you to himself. And he says that God has called us for the purpose of, he's not called us to the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. He wants us to live our lives in purity, in in not just moral purity, but purity of life, that our love for Christ trumps all other loves. There's There's nothing else in all of life that can compete with my love for Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says in verse 8, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write. Why wouldn't he need anybody to write? What did Jesus say in John 13, 34? I give you a new commandment. What's a new commandment? That you love one another the way I have loved you. Now, that, if he left that little part off, the way I've loved you, it would have been a lot easier to take, wouldn't it? He wants us to love each other the way he loved us, which was that he loved us so much he was willing to lay down his life for us. Sometimes we love fellow believers until it's time to be very critical of them to somebody. And so we give in to the temptation. And instead of manifesting love towards them, we manifest something else. He goes on for indeed... You do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. That was to the north of them. But we urge you, brethren, to excel excel still more. We want you to be people. This is what sanctified people do is they love the brethren. They love them. They cherish them. They They have real delight in them because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So he's, what he's doing here, and in fact, I forgot all about this. 
God's desire for you is your sanctification. And he tells us how in these verses. And what remains in this letter, in chapters 5 and 6, the rest of chapter 4, and then verses, chapters 5, there is no 6, sorry. In, in those sections, uh, he's going to deal with three areas in need. The first one is what we're looking at today, that we be pure in lifestyle. God wants us to be pure in lifestyle. Secondly, he wants to be, us to be peaceful in tribulation. And this is when he begins to talk about the future and what we have to look forward to. And so he says, is, he's telling these young believers, this is what I want to see develop in your life, that you are pure in your lifestyle, that you're peaceful in tribulation, because you're going to have tribulation. That's the context of growing in the Christian life. And that you are productive in church life, and that is in your relationships with fellow believers and what you do together. We are a team. And, for example, we work together so that people come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to have a relationship with him. We're on the same team. We are all interested in the same thing. We want to be engaged in this, and we want to do it together with each other and for one another's benefit. So what we're going to look at today is being pure in lifestyle. Now, notice this. In James 4.17, James says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, To him, it is sin. It's a violation of your commitment to the living God when you know what's right to do and you don't do it. How are you supposed to treat people? How are you supposed to treat your neighbor? How are you supposed to treat people that God brings in your path? Well, the Bible's really clear, isn't it? You're supposed to love people. And you go, you've got to be kidding me. Yes, you're supposed to love people. That's what we've been called to do. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't love our our neighbors with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's reserved for God himself. Now, I've discovered, getting to know a few people over the years, that people love themselves. In other words, if you pinch them, they're going to pull back and say, that hurts. I care about my feelings. Don't do that to me. We care. And so he wants us in living this purity and lifestyle, uh, that he wants us to become pure in our lifestyle for the benefit of others, for the benefit and the glory of God as well as the benefit of others. Now, only God can sanctify you. I want to make that clear. You can't sanctify yourself. I could teach you a 12-week course on how to sanctify yourself, and it would be a bunch of baloney. That would be a bunch of baloney because you can't sanctify yourself. God can sanctify you. He can set you apart. He can change your character. He can make you more like Christ. But what you have to do is cooperate. You have to cooperate in your dependence upon him to make these changes in your life. And this is, this is so important. I'm sure most of you guys have had the horrible experience of having your wife speak seriously with you and say, you know, you really need to make some changes. And remember how angry you got? And how defensive you got. But God's placed her in your life for that good purpose. So that she can be used by God as a mouthpiece to be honest with you. And I, I thoroughly appreciate the fact that I have a wife who will tell me the truth. And she'll tell me the kind of needs I need to make. The kind of changes I need to make in my life. Well, that's why, that's why God put us together, so that we could be a blessing to each other. And so uh, the first thing is, it, it, the way we cooperate is this way, these four things. First of all, continual growth. Continual growth. Look at verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, he actually puts that in there. Anytime he can... He can appraise people. He will do it. And so he says, you are walking in that way. I want you to excel still more. That's how he says it. It's not that you're not walking as you ought to walk, but just excel still more. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is you abstain from sexual immorality. So continual growth is something that we have to have in our lives in order to experience the sanctifying work of the Father. You think, you've got to be kidding You mean I can't just kick back and not care about this? No, you can't. 
You actually have to care. You actually have to care that you want to draw closer to the living God. You want to be more like Christ. And so you ask God to give you a plan and a way to grow and become more like Christ. And so there's continual growth. And when you see somebody who is experiencing continual growth, you can count on it. There are some good changes coming in their lives. Because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has provided everything you need, including fellow believers. Sometimes fellow believers are used by God to show you what you don't want to be. I'm not going to name any, but you know how that is. And sometimes I've been in that place where I'm sure that what God wanted them to know is don't be like him. When I was going through some incredible anxiety, it threw me into this thing where I couldn't sleep all night, which I still am not doing all that well, but that's why my voice is one of the reasons my voice is like this. I was so full of anxiety, and finally I thought of Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I realized that this, this idea of giving in to this false view about who God is in my life, that I have to worry that this is a dangerous place to live, the world, the fallen world, and that God is not going to take care of us. I remember on several occasions where I begged God to bail me out. You ever do that? Where you know you've made a couple of mistakes and you wish you hadn't gone down this path. And you say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. God, please have mercy on me. The fact is what God wants is for us to grow. He wants us to have continual growth. He says we should walk like we were instructed, just as you actually do walk. In other words, he's saying you're doing good, now keep it up. And that's his policy. He gives praise where where praise is due. This is a confession. I used to think uh, years ago, in fact, I'm sure all of my kids have been affected by this, that I was supposed to be nervous about them and have to be telling them continually that they weren't doing things the way they should and they needed to change. In fact, it got, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it in a very nice way. It wasn't nice. It was more like, you're driving me crazy. Why do you give into that? Why are you going in that direction? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? On and on and on and on. Finally, finally, God in his mercy Open my eyes and my heart to the reality. He doesn't treat me that way. God has never treated me that way. He has always treated me in grace. Amazingly, I can remember uh, I was brought up in a context in which the repentance was something where you just poured out your guts and you scraped your insides out and you told God every horrible thing about you. I remember hearing a preacher actually preach this. He said, every time you confess your sin, You should go back and reconfess all the sins you've committed in case you may have forgotten one. May I tell you, that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. You've got to be kidding me. The reason you haven't died, God hasn't put a gun to your head, is because he's a God of grace. When when Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But God's love for you is far greater than you've ever believed. He was telling you the truth. That's the truth. God's grace is manifest to us in a million different ways. And one of the ways is he doesn't blow his stack. Isn't that great? That God doesn't blow his stack every time you you fail to do what you should have done. He shows you grace. And he gently urges you back to where you ought to be. We have to have continual growth. There has to be continual growth. And continual growth doesn't come by me having a crisis in my life every week and having a revival in which I pour out my guts and beg for God's forgiveness. It comes through actually having a plan and a purpose. I want to become more like Christ. Let me just ask you something. Do you think you're like Christ in your lifestyle? I'm not saying that to make you feel bad, but it makes me feel bad when I hear that. Does your life manifest the grace and goodness and righteousness and truth of Jesus Christ? When people around you, do they see Jesus in you? Well, that's what we want, right? 
And so we have to commit to have continual growth, that we're actually growing because of what's happening. There's a couple important things in this statement here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. The first is that the basics of Christian living can be learned very quickly. How long did Paul stay at Thessalonica? Well, we only know of three weeks. He was there for three Sabbaths, we're told, in, in uh, Acts chapter 17. So he stayed there for three weeks, and he taught him all these things. Isn't that amazing? And so it doesn't take forever for you to learn the truth. I used to teach a class at seminary called, uh, uh, it was a Christian life class, spiritual formation. And uh, I, it was, I taught it over a period of a, a quarter, about 12 weeks, 11 weeks, I guess it was. And uh, I was amazed that you could actually expose people to the truth of how God works in the lives of his people to bring maturity into their lives, to conform them into the image of Christ. Christ being formed in you. That's a good expression. Christ being formed in you. That's a biblical expression. You become more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is what God wants to do. And he wants this, conti- this continual growth to be taking place. He wants you to be growing. If you're dead in the water, you know what I mean by that, right? You're not moving. There's no change taking place. You're not seeing God do things in your life to change your character. I think it's a wonderful thing for husbands to have a wife who will say to them, you know, you really have a habit of this so that they can say, Father, I want you to work in my life. I want you to bring change in my life. I want to become a person of grace, a person of love. I want to have real delight in people. I don't want to always be complaining about people. I don't always want to notice the speck in their eye when I've got a log in my own eye. Don't you love that expression in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, don't try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye while you have a log in your own eye. I had a guy who called that lamp, uh, log jam-itis. It was a spiritual condition. You have this log in your eye, but you can't, you, it's amazing. You can't see it. You don't notice it. What you notice is the speck in your brother's eye. And so we are told, Jesus tells us, first get the log out of your own eye. Experience some spiritual growth. Grow in your life, in your discipleship. And then God can use you to minister to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's kind of dangerous for a guy who's like a, a loose cannon. I suppose there are women who are loose cannons too. But, you know, how, whoever they get exposed to, they're gonna, this is the mark of their spirituality. I know what's wrong with you. You've got this and this and this and this. Sometimes we have technical terms for them. Maybe you know the Greek word or the Hebrew word. This is what's wrong with you. And when somebody says that to you, you should say, well, well, thank you. What's wrong with you? Where do you need to grow? Do I need to become more like Christ? Oh, let me tell you, absolutely. Absolutely. And so when he's, when he's talking about that we need to grow in this way, we need to have continual growth. Uh, God doesn't want us just to maintain. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like Christ. And the basis of this exhortation is the word of God. In verse 2, he says, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord. We taught you these truths over a period of three weeks. I'm stunned by that. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to teach this course on, on uh, Sunday nights in, in September. There are 12 different areas of truth that the Bible teaches about, about the Bible, for example. What is the real nature of the Bible? Well, this is what the Bible says about the Bible. It says that it is God-breathed, which means it's God's creation, and you can trust it. It is trustworthy. You can rely upon what it says. What about when it says stuff that I don't like? You need to hear it. That's it exactly. And what's nice about it is when you get it from the Word of God, you you can't blow your stack over it. This is the Word of God. This isn't some human being who's... God is his mind twisted. This is the word of God. And so in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, the word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides. It's, it's so sharp that it's able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. 
I, I dare you to tell me what the difference is between soul and spirit and, bone, and how to separate bone from marrow without killing the person. <laughs> but he says that's what the word's able to do. It comes into your life and it, it shows you the truth about yourself. And he says it lays you bare. I love that word, lays you bare, because it, it's the idea of fillet. Do you know how to fillet a fish? Ask Terry, he'll tell you. You fillet a fish, well, you cut it, and so you can lay it out just like this. And he says, the word of God fillets you. It lays you bare before him to whom you must give an account. You know, this is what the wonderful thing about talking to the Lord Jesus Christ and listening to him talk to you through his word is you find out, oh, I do need help, don't I? Look what he reveals about my heart. Look what he actually shows me. I'm supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to be sacrificial. I'm supposed to be loving. I'm supposed to care about people even when they have fault. How did, how did he ever save you? Didn't he begin to love you even though you had all kinds of faults? Absolutely. So when he calls you to love your brother or sister in Christ, he knows they're not perfect. In fact, if they were perfect, then you really wouldn't love them because all they'd be doing was constantly making you jealous because you, you and I are so flawed. So we have to be, in order to be sanctified, to experience the ongoing sanctification of the Father in our lives, changing us into the image of Christ, we have to be growing continually. There has to be continual growth. The second thing is there has to be spiritual purity. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. This is the desire of God. Do you understand what I mean when I say that your desires reveal your nature, your character? What is it you really like? A lot of times what happens to us as believers, we kind of pick up on what people think we should desire and shouldn't desire. And so we try to project the fact that we only desire good things. But what God, what your, what your desires reveal your heart, they reveal your heart. What do you desire? And if you could be honest and say, well, this is what I desire. I desire a Mercedes and I desire a new house and I desire this and I desire that. And the other thing that reveals your heart. What's really valuable to you? You know what's the most valuable to me right now in this moment? Because I'm usually of sane mind at this moment. What, what I desire more than anything else is to be like Jesus Christ. And I'm so far from it. But I desire that. That's my desire. And God's desire, because he's a perfect God, is for your sanctification. He wants you to be like his son. He wants his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. He actually wants you to be among that number, that family, that are the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, his children. That's his desire for you. And here, his desire for you is sanctification, that your heart be changed, that you became love, you become loving and sacrificial. You become self-sacrificing. Isn't it great when you run into somebody who has a heart like Christ and they're constantly giving themselves away and you're kind of stunned by it. You don't see that that often. And so you see somebody like this and you go, wow, the gospel's really had impact on his life, hasn't it? And that's what God wants for us. It's glorious good news. Um, back in, I mentioned back in uh, Romans 7 when Paul says, you know, uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He was talking about, I'm so tired of being tempted to sin. I hate it. And he said, and you know, what, you know what got him? Get this. Paul knew the Ten Commandments. But when he got to the Tenth, the Tenth one totally stumbled him. You know what the Tenth Commandment is? Oh, you're Baptist. You don't know the Tenth Commandment. What's the Tenth Commandment? Is thou shalt not covet. What does that mean? That just means I will not crave that which does not belong to me. Have you ever seen Gary's car at Old Plymouth? You ever, you ever crave something like that that somebody has that you want? Craving is, is a sin. And so he says, thou shalt not covet. And he mentions all kinds of things. You don't covet your neighbor's wife. You don't cover his animals. You don't cover his house. You don't uh, lust after is what the word means. You don't covet. And he said, here's what happened to me, man. I began to covet everything. When I read that law that said thou shalt not covet, all of a sudden 
I wanted everything. I started coveting everything I saw. Well, what was going on? What was going on, he explains to us, it's the fact that our heart is still impacted by sin and rebellion. And therefore, we still have those desires to be disobedient in those given situations. I want to sin. He says to me, thou shalt not. And I say, oh, no, I want this. And he talks about what, what, a, what a pitiful experience that is. I hate it. That's what he said. Who will, oh, wretched man that I am, this is miserable. I hate it. I want to please God. Why do I keep giving in to these temptations? Why do I have these temptations that tell me, oh, no, you've got to have this, even though God says, no, you should have it. And so God says, I want to give you a gift. I want to work in your life in such a way that that's no longer true. I want to work in your life in such a way that you actually experience the desires of a heart that's made new in Christ Jesus. His, his, the way that you get there is real simple. He tells you in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, 11 is the first commandment in the book of Romans. It's the most important commandment in the book of Romans, and it's probably the most important commandment in the Bible. And basically what he says there is, well, let me turn you there so you'll see it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans 6, 11. First commandment. Now, a commandment, you know it's a commandment because it's in an imperative mode. That's all way you can tell in language. This is put together as a commandment. He says, even so, consider yourselves, which means to count this to be true. Count this to be true that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He, he told him before this, you know this, that when you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into his death and burial and resurrection. So now you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And so what do you have to do? You have to count it to be true and obey it, live accordingly. Now, when you find out you get some bad news, like I've got some disease and the doctor said that you need to stop eating carrots or start eating carrots, whichever. But, you know, you just can't. You've got this disease. And so you, okay, you, if you believe your doctor, you count it to be true. And so you start obeying his commandments. This is what you need to do. In six months, you'll be past this if you just do this. And so because you believe him, you count what he says to be true, and you begin to obey what he has commanded you to do. God says you died to sin, and he's treating sin in that context like a master, like a slave master, a slave driver. He said you used to be a slave of sin, and now you have died to sin. And you've been made alive to God. So what do you do? The way that you respond in obedience to that truth is that you stop presenting yourself to sin as a servant and you start presenting yourself to God as a servant. Now, what happens, of course, is that we need divine enablement to obey his commands. Because, for example, he, he has commanded me to love you. He's commanded me to love people. He's commanded me to love brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the great commandment. This is the, the final commandment he gave us, the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love one another as I have loved you. Now, if he had left that as I have loved you out, it would have been a lot easier because he loved us this way. He laid down his life for us. You mean I have to love you to the point of dying for you? Do I? Don't be bashful. Yes, that's exactly what I'm commanded to do, to love you enough that I would die for you. Something really neat in, in, early in the book of Ephesians is that when you get married, a lot of people don't know this, but when you get married, you men get married, you are saying, I'm willing to die for this woman. Because he says you have to love her the way Christ loved her. And so if somebody has to die in the family, guess who's going to die? The husband. You heard that story about the little kid, and his father told him that his brother needed a kidney, and he asked him if he'd be willing to give his kidney. And so they thought everything was going fine. He was going to donate his kidney. They were going to transplant and all that. But the little boy, his dad went in and he saw him in bed and he was crying. This was getting close to the surgery. And he says, what's the matter? He says, well, when am I going to die? He had assumed that because he was giving his kidney, he was going to have to die for his brother. And he was, he was weeping about it because he was afraid to die. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? He actually laid down his life for you. 
He says, I love you this much. I have a friend who wrote a book called uh, Worth a Son. And he got a lot of criticism for it. Guys that talked to me about it. They didn't like that expression because they thought it implied you're worth so much that God would trade you for Jesus kind of thing. Well, that's exactly what he did. Father gave the son to take your place to suffer the penalty for your sin so that you could live. You're worth the son to him. <laughs> isn't that amazing? It's, it's incredible, isn't it? And now he says, I want you to have the same attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you willing to lay down your life? Now, if you're willing to lay down your life, then certainly you would give up a few bucks to meet their needs, wouldn't you? If, if I'm willing to lay down my life for you, I'm certainly willing. I would certainly be willing to empty my wallet to meet your need. And this is what he's called us to do. He's called us to do this very thing. And then the third thing is, and that it was what we've just been talking about, brotherly love. We're supposed to love one another. He says, uh, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for the people, just as we also do for you, for all people, rather, just as you all do, also do for you. We also do for you. He's rejoicing. Paul, and this, this is the context in, in, chapters, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, where he's rejoicing over Timothy's report about these believers. Oh, yeah. I mean, they really show, they show signs that they really know Christ. In fact, they're willing to lay down their lives for fellow believers. Isn't that something? They're willing to give up their life for them. Well, Paul took that as evidence that they really had been born again. You know, I've, I've thought about this before. Is, is there any foolproof way that you could come up with where you could tell whether a person really got saved when they profess Christ? You know, like some people, some groups, they use the, the sinner's prayer and they ask you to repeat after them and they tell you, they tell you these words and you say the words and then they say, you're now a Christian. Sometimes they'll say, if you meant that, you're now a Christian. Well, the fact is what we've all discovered is there's a lot of times, well, I've, I'm just convinced that a person has turned to Christ in faith. But then as you watch their life that follows, you realize they still don't know him. Paul says, if you say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, Jesus said to the Philippian jailer, do you remember that in Acts 16? When the Philippian jailer comes out and he's all nervous because he knows it's been an earthquake and the doors have all been opened and he's afraid they're all going to escape and he would be killed. And they know that he's scared. And so Paul calls him and says, hey, we're all here. Don't worry about it. We're, you're fine. And so the guy comes to Paul because he had been watching what he was doing. He knew that he had been preaching the gospel. And so the, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And, G, and so Paul gives him this real difficult uh, commandment. What does he say he has to do to be saved? He has to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be saved. You have to trust Christ. And what happens is if you're saved, there's always going to be evidences of it. Why is that? Well, because when a person comes, to, when they get saved, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to live within them. The Holy Spirit comes to live within them. These Two, and then it also says the Father comes to live with him. So the triune God is living inside of you. And you know what? You can't hide them. They, it becomes evident that they're living in you in the way that you live, the way you talk, the way you treat people, the way you treat things. It becomes obvious that God is dwelling in you. And that's how we can tell that a person has begun to follow Christ because they begin to manifest the very character of Christ. And so what Paul is talking about here, he's saying, I want you to live the kind of lifestyle that manifests the reality of who you really are, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to I be real careful. You don't think I'm saying you can sanctify yourself. You can't. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't save yourself. God has to do it. And the way that God does it is he produces changes within you that you can't hide. You just can't hide. They'll become visible. 
They'll become visible in all kinds of ways. The last thing he says, the way we cooperate with God is we live orderly lives. In verses 11 and 12, listen to this. He says, verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, a quiet life, and attend to your own business. Mind your own business. Attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now, later on in the book, it'll become more apparent what he means, why he tells them to work with their hands. He's saying, you've got you to earn a living for yourself. Because there were some people in the church at Thessalonica, these young believers that thought, hey, Jesus is coming back at any moment, and there are people in our church who have plenty of money. They could take care of all of us for a few years. So we could just, we don't need to work. We'll just live off of fellow believers. And Paul gets all over their case because of this very thing. When he says here that he wants you to live a quiet life. And he mentions these three things. He says, you lead a quiet life or a peaceful life is the idea. And, and the idea is that, that uh, you're quiet in the sense that you have peace of mind. You have peace of mind? And God wants us to leave, lead a, an orderly life. Why? Why does he want you to lead a quiet life, a peaceful life? And why does he want you to mind your own business? Why does he want you to get into other people's business? Why does he want you to earn your own living? Why not just mooch off of somebody else? Well, the reason is, so your life will, be, will attract rather than detract and distract. That people will see as you live your life in this world for Jesus Christ, including having a job and doing what God's called you to do, will be a testimony to people around you and so that you can give rather than receive. You know who said that? It's more blessed to give than receive. Anybody knew who that was? Well, it's quoted by Paul, but Paul tells you who said it. He knew who said it? It was Jesus. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's more benefit to giving than there is receiving. Why would he know? Well, he's the one who left heaven to come to this earth and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said, that was a greater blessing than me being the possessor of all of, all of creation. He's the, he's the heir of everything. And yet he said, this was more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's why he wants us to live an orderly life. He wants us to live a life that people can look at and they were not confused about the gospel. I'd love, I, wouldn't it be great if somebody looked at the way you live and they said, you know, you must be a Christian. You must be a believer in Jesus Christ. I told you about a guy that's a, that, has, uh, that writes for the New York Times. And he is a, not a believer. He confesses he doesn't believe what Christians, evangelicals believe. But he says, I got to tell you, I've gone all over the world and every place I've gone where there's been a crisis, there have been Christians there serving people who are in great need. He says, I don't know what causes them to do that, but I got to tell you, that's really a great thing. And they're the ones I always see there. You know, that's the history of the world. Every time there's been a great plague of some kind where a lot of people die, who's taking care of them? Well, in, in history, it's usually Christians. They're willing to die for other people. And that's what he's called us to do. And so God wants us to be sanctified and the way that we are going to experience by continuing in our growth in Christ, that I don't just get settled. You know, I'm fine. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. When I first came to Brentwood, I was in a church. And I'd never been into a church like this where they actually believe what's called once saved, always saved. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that the Bible teaches clearly that if you get saved, you're, you can't be born again again. You're only born again once, and God keeps you throughout all eternity. But they taught a doctrine called once saved, always saved. And what it meant was, you, as long as you profess Christ in some way, you go forward for an invitation or something, and then you can live any way you want, and you're going to go to heaven. I would say that's not true. And the reason it's not true is, if you put your faith in Christ, he's going to change you. 
He's going to change you. If there's no change, that's why James says, faith without effects has no power. If your faith doesn't produce effects, it's not real faith. And so if you've put faith in Christ, he's changed you. And it's going to be seen in your life. Your life is not going to save you. Your faith in Christ saves you. But if you have true faith in Christ, your life is going to change. And that's what, that's what Paul knows is true of these young believers. And so he's telling them, I want you to experience sanctification. And in order to experience sanctification, you have to cooperate with the Father. You have to cooperate with the Father. If you don't cooperate with him, he's going to be at a distance from you. If you cooperate with him, and he's told us how, that we, that we are going to practice this sexual purity is by continual growth, practicing purity in our lives, uh, expressing brotherly love to each other, loving one another, really loving one another, and then finally, living an orderly lifestyle. That is cooperating with the God who can sanctify. I can't sanctify you, and I don't know anybody who can't accept the living God. He's able to sanctify you and bring you into a closer and closer relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we again confess to you that we desperately need your work in our lives. We confess to you, Father, that we desire to grow. We desire to become more like Christ. We desire for you to do a deep and profound work in us so that you could use us for your glory and for your benefit. We long to be effectual in our living for Christ, Father, in every way that we can. We pray that you would use us and work in our lives, and we'll give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.